The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range. Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200. All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie Happy Wednesday. George Hook here uh, with The Right Hook on Newstalk. Here are some of the best bits that you might have missed on today's programme. I'm joined now at the Opera House in Cork by parish priest of Killa in the Diocese of Cloyne, Father Tim Hazelwood. Father Hazelwood, welcome to the programme. Thank you, George. Thanks very much. Yours is an extraordinary story, mm. but I would imagine it's not a unique story because mm. what we have seen uh, just recently, for instance, we saw like uh, Cliff Richard has mm. taken action against the British police mm. because nobody has said a word about it, has found any evidence, but Jetty mm. stands accused. It must have been awful for you, a priest, mm. and still a practicing priest, mm. to have been accused anonymously. Mm. What happened? Let's start at the start. No okay. End. So I feel I'd like to say some little thing first. Please, before, but not a please big, do. Uh, and that, that is that um, I suppose I abhor abuse. I've known people who have been abused, and I've actually worked with people who have been abused. So I get a sense that when I'm speaking about my side of things that I'm forgetting... That I, sure. I suppose I empathise with people who have been abused. As when my story began uh, six years ago, on a Saturday morning, the 20th of March 2000, uh, in, in the church in Blarney, where I was working, where I was told that there was an accusation made against me. Now, I actually laughed because I thought I was being wound up. I didn't believe it, and I saw after a while that it was serious. Um, I was in shock. I, and I suppose my first... A feeling was that I need to prove to the person who told me that it's not true. I actually took out a Bible and I swore on it. Um, and I suppose the immensity of it didn't hit me until a little later. Um, and the shame and all the other feelings that come with it. Uh, well, uh, Father Hazel, I'd like mm. to stop you there for just okay. a minute. We have a great sense, because we live in a democracy, mm -hmm. right? We've a great sense that if we're innocent, we're, mm -hmm. we're, we're covered with this cloak of innocence, mm -hmm. which is going to protect us. Now, we're, mm -hmm. we're, you're at this point, and we're going to continue the story, but you're innocent in your head. You've, mm -hmm. you've, I'm absolutely innocent. You have this uh, uh, accusation, but, but it's an anonymous accusation. Yeah. So a, you have no defense? No. And uh, I suppose that... That evening and the following days, what I discovered was that the organization that I worked with, I had actually more to fear from them than the person who was accusing me because they sent an anonymous accusation to the Gardaí and to the HSC and named me from an anonymous. And the church's rules, the Code of Canon Law says that a priest is entitled to his good name. And they broke that. So I was straight away, I felt under uh, I suppose a little bit of betrayal and uh, knew that I couldn't trust. So I felt very alone that the organisation wouldn't help. But you are alone. I mean, mm. it's interesting you quote canon law, mm. but civil law also entitles you to your good name. Mm. Uh, this isn't the Napoleonic Code in France. You are mm. innocent until proven guilty. Now, the thing is, what the church mm. appears to have done, partially, I suppose, mm. if we try and empathise yes. with their position, mm. they've gone through decades of problems mm. uh, and only in this morning's paper mm. uh, we read of one of the great 
abusers in mm. the priesthood. Mm. Um, so they're terrified that yeah. uh, they don't do it right. It's okay, but they name you. But what about the other side? What happens to the anonymous accusation? When does that become... When are you allowed to face your accuser? Well, he never came forward. So it... it uh, I discovered who it was from the information that was given to me within a few days and making some inquiries. You know, I was told what year, the place, and he'd given, he would ring up uh, the child protection officer and say different things and add to it. And so uh, I, I never faced my accuser, never. It was just left there. But it got worse because um, I was in a very vulnerable position so I went for some legal help advice and they said to do nothing so I did nothing and he started to send anonymous phone calls anonymous letter um, very offensive to you to me personally and then unsigned uh, of course oh no it was anonymous again unsigned but I kept a record of all of them I the dates and what was said and one good Friday a, a very an appalling one um, but I knew I couldn't go to anybody. But he made, a, I suppose, a mistake then in that uh, he started sending stuff to a website of the Association of Catholic Priests. And I'm a member, and they contacted me, and there's a very good solicitor on Dublin, Robert Dore, who defended Kevin Reynolds when he was accused by, uh, can I mention RT? They accused him on uh, a programme to, to father yeah. a child. And Robert advised me to go to the police, to the guards. So my accuser was picked up and he admitted the, um, what he, the phone calls and uh, the intimidation, but the director of public prosecution said that there wasn't sufficient intimidation to get a prosecution. So I was How much? This is interesting mm. that the DPP would say there wasn't enough intimidation. Like, how much intimidation, I wonder, is enough? Is there a kind of mm. a number of letters or a number of phone calls? Or uh, mm-hmm. what's intimidation? Like, you have mm. just been, like, your career as a priest, mm. you are still a priest mm-hmm. to this day as a parish priest in Killa, County mm. Cork. Um, but but you've nowhere to go. You you're mm. a servant of the Catholic Church. The Catholic mm. Church has effectively disowned mm. you, and now the legal system has disowned you because the mm. DPP has said we're not going to do anything. So so this person is now mm. free to continue or otherwise. Mm. So did it stop at this point or not? It stopped uh, because I think he probably was frightened because they came to him. But they couldn't ask him about what he was saying about me because I suppose they would be accused of intimidating a victim. So they couldn't, they did, and he said it himself. You cannot ask me about this. So so I was left with a a situation, do I just leave it there? Or So I took, I I suppose it was a a brave decision to take a civil case against him. Just before we get to the civil Mm. case, because my guest is Father Tim Hazelwood, the parish priest and killer, who was accused of sexual abuse anonymously uh, and was left defenceless because his employers, the the organisation to whom he had given his life, the Catholic Church, had effectively judged him guilty uh, without any proof or any trial. Now, the, the, the problem here is, though, that when we look at various 
parishes or dioceses mm. and we look at the bad side of it. What the Catholic mm. Church did was they moved known abusers around. Mm. Now, you know, what about you, though? Because you're a career priest, no matter what way we look at it. Mm. This is your career. Did they move you or were you able to continue your ministry? I continued in the parish uh, that I was in. Um but uh, it's interesting, after three years, uh, our, our bishop, we got a new bishop. And I suppose it's important to remember it was the Diocese of Cloyne. And we had been through a terrible time with yeah. the Cloyne report. And uh, as you say about empathising, I have a, a certain sympathy for those who are trying to administer the, the, the rules of child protection. Um, a certain amount. Not a, but uh, the new bishop, I have a new bishop who came and he knew my story and he offered me a parish, you know, would I serve in Killa? I was reluctant because it, this was like a, a millstone. Uh, when is it going to appear again, you know? Um, but but I, you're standing on the altar like 10 o'clock mass, mm. you know? And you're standing on the altar and then you get into the pulpit and you're sort of... Mm. Like, I would have thought that was very hard to do. I'd be looking mm. down at these people and I'd be saying to myself, I wonder what they think of me mm. or... Did that sort of... Did that did. affect you in that way? It did, very much. Uh, there were... Uh, I, I I was on sleeping tablets for a year. I I sometimes I would just get upset. I still feel it. Take your time. Yeah. Take your time. Father Hazelwood, take your time. I suppose I was waiting. Would this happen again? I have a family. I've my mother is still alive. So it's. It's not just your career or reputation, but it's a lot of other people are affected. And um, it is very difficult. And I empathize with pe people in that position. It's very... Yeah. Your mother, if mm. you don't mind me talking about your mother, um, mm. there's a great thing in Ireland. And in a way, I think mm. we've lost the tradition. You mm. know the idea of the priest and the family, <laughs> right? And there's this great day because there are mm. photographs in houses in uh. Ireland where the sun is ordained Indeed, yeah. and invariably there is a mother or parents mm. standing next to him and that remains mm. a very proud thing so mm. therefore did your mother notice what's going on no yeah, all right no she didn't three of my siblings robert or advised me that i needed no when it happened i went for help i suppose i have um qualifications in counseling and psychotherapy right. and i knew that that i couldn't do this on my own so i went for help uh, and uh, Robert said I should tell I told some of my siblings and, and it was a relief yeah uh, because I suppose it was I like, was just going to say like that if it happened to people like me like mm. we're married and mm. we have children and we have support systems mm. the problem for a celibate who mm. is a priest mm. you're alone you know, you're living in a parish house or where, wherever mm. you are. Like, mm. there's, a, there's, it's a very lonely position to mm. be in when the manure hits the mm. fan. Now, here's the key point: mm. you bring a civil action. Mm. So what happens now? Because you're prepared to go to court now. You're mm. prepared to stand in the witness mm. box in a court, mm. in all its publicity. Mm. So what happens now? Well, I suppose it, it was a risk to take because if I lost. Then all the costs and stuff, and uh, um, would it would be huge. Like, but if you lost, there was also the reputation damage would be gone. But yeah. I suppose I, I I knew I was I was in the right, so I I felt that I had 
Um, I needed to do it. I couldn't live sure. with this thing just hanging over me. It was going, and we th- we thought long and hard about it with my solicitor, and he 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 numbered out all the pros and cons. But in the end of it, like, being able to stand freely and feel okay with yourself was more yeah. important than having the cost thing is interesting. I'm mm. not going to pry, but like mm. uh, costs could be a huge burden huge. to bear for a priest like who, yeah. you know, isn't in mm. the super tax bracket. Yeah. So what happened? So did it go to court? It didn't. It, it, well, it, it was posted in the court, but it, it was settled. Okay. Because he settled. But it was interesting what happened during it because now I felt I had to build a case for myself. Yeah. So I, I, I asked the diocese for my file, so sure. that I get which I thought your was. employee file in effect. And I got pages of redacted paper, pages upon pages of just blank. No. Yes. Yeah. But like in again, when we talk about what mm. I'm entitled to, you mm. know, I'm entitled to my work record. Mm. So why am I different as 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 a non-religious mm. layperson as you a priest? Why aren't you entitled? to the same I suppo- entitlement. I suppose that's the big question I'm wondering about now. Like, I'm left with, why was it sent in anonymously? Why wasn't I supported? Nobody said to me during this, um, do you need anything? Can we help you clear your name? Here is your file. Uh, I experienced a certain amount of bullying as well from one particular individual. And within, the, within the Catholic Church? Well, he was an employee. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. an employee. And um, so, but there was there was absolutely no help, no support, nobody I could go and say. Bullying in the sense you feel he judged you guilty. No, threatened, threatened that if I continued with this, um, uh, he he was saying that I I was entitled, but not. He was trying to deny me the file. That's what he was doing. Extraordinary for mm. people listening. I mean, we both know here, Mm. particularly Diocese of Cloyne, isn't the Catholic Church's finest hour. Mm. But collateral damage isn't acceptable. Mm. And you were collateral damage. Well, I'm one of those many throughout the church because uh, since since the story broke in the tablet magazine, I've been contacted from Scotland, from Australia, from England, and all over Ireland of people in a similar position. One man from Australia, he just two lines of an email. He said, I could replace your name with mine. And it's happening to him now. So I think it's interesting that we have a very strong child protection policy in, in our diocese and children are very safe, which is a great thing. And every two years there's an audit done of the way that from the national board, they come and do an audit, and if you're not doing it properly, then it's it's named and it's it's public. But there's no audit for priests the way priests are treated, none. So, I rang the national board during this um, three times, wanting to know what is the policy with anonymous allegations, and I still haven't got a, a direct answer. I was told things like, um, "What what do you mean? Could you give us the circumstances?" But to me, it's, it's black and what is the policy? We have a policy on everything. But it seems to be down to the local bishop to do what he feels, which I don't think is good enough 
Right. Yeah. Well, uh, Father Tim Hazelwood, um, you appear at, at, um, not undamaged, because you mm. can't be undamaged mm. by this experience, but you are the better for it, as I would mm. suggest to you. Your bravery, sometimes when you sit at mm. home and think, uh, you may mm. have done vast favours for people that mm. you never know in mm. whatever country it may be. Mm. Father Tim Hazelwood, parish priest of Kille and Diocese of Cloyne, Proudly sitting in the Right Hook studio, an innocent man. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much, Josh. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie this morning's paper carried the headline from the Tornishta Minister for Justice, Francis Fitzgerald, that Ireland is only at a moderate risk of lone wolf attacks in terrorism. This occurred apparently after her meeting with Rob Wainwright, who is the head of Europol, the Europe-wide law enforcement agency that deals with international crime and terrorism. Rob Wainwright earlier this afternoon was speaking at the McGill Summer School in Glenties, and he joins me now. Rob, welcome to the programme. Thank you. The headlines here this morning um, on our newspapers is that you had a meeting with the Tarnished, and now it was a private meeting, so I don't want to go there. But nevertheless, the headlines are saying you think we are at moderate risk. What does that mean? Well, I think, to be fair, the Tarnished used those words, um, but I I largely agree in the sense that um, I think we, as as a continent of Europe, we are facing a very high terrorist threat, perhaps the highest um, for a generation. That's clear from recent attacks. Uh, The volatility of the terrorist threat in the sense that we have examples of network-style operations aimed at mass casualties in Paris and Brussels, and now these lone actor attacks that are also very devastating, of course, as we've seen in Nice. Now, what that means, I think, that um, all European countries um, are a threat from this terrorism, I think. I don't think any of us can be, therefore, complacent about it. But I think Ireland ranks below France, uh, the UK, perhaps, and one or two others for a number of reasons. So it's right that the Garda Commissioner, whom I was also speaking to, uh, and the Tonister, you know, have uh, a sensible view about this. Are, they're on their guard, quite rightly. But I, I don't think that Ireland is 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 in the first line of of fire from ISIS. Uh, that may well be true. Now, if, you know, from Europol's point of view, it's the European Union's law enforcement agency, in a way, almost network organisations would be easier to pick up through intelligence. It would be very difficult, uh, no matter how good your intelligence were, to pick up a law wolf, isn't that so? Yeah, that's right, George. It's much harder. You know, we have a good handle on the 5,000 or so um, European nationals that we think have gone to Syria and Iraq, and about a third of which have come back. Uh, these, the lone actors that uh, haven't gone anywhere and have been radicalized very, very quickly within their communities, normally over social media platforms on the internet, as you say, are much harder to pick up. They do, however, many of them have criminal backgrounds. They've come to the attention of police authorities in the past, normally not for terrorist um, reasons, but nonetheless, I think if we're smarter in the way that we organize our information sharing arrangements to make sure that police databases are combined with uh, intelligence databases, then we can begin to, to get a better handle perhaps on what we, on, on where, where the threat might be coming from. And that's exactly what the new European Counterterrorism Centre at Europol is designed to try and do. 
But, I mean, many people are suggesting, you know, that if somebody does this and they're a citizen of the country in which they commit the terrorist act, that, you know, they haven't been radicalised, they're actually citizens of the country. I was thinking of my own life and thinking, you know, if I'd watched a ton of John Wayne movies, I might have, I might have killed uh, American Indians. Or immediately after World War II, we never talked about Germans, Japanese or Italians. We talked about Krauts, Nips and Wops. So the, the radicalization of these young people, who are clearly impressionable, can be done simply by watching their television every day. And it's, it's an unfortunate phrase, but in effect they become copycat killings. Yes, and I think there's something here. I think what has changed from, from the period you were describing, of course, is that we have the Internet now and, and the ubiquitous nature of the social media, which reaches into the hearts and minds of, of our vulnerable people, the most vulnerable people, in, 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 a, in a much more direct way. And I, and, I, and I am concerned about the extent to which ISIS, for one, are manipulating that part of our, our, our social lives to spread their message. And so a key part of this is fighting back on the Internet, which we're helping to do at Europol. But another part, as you, as you suggest, is also in the communities to make sure that with families, with teachers, with faith leaders, that you know we, we, we can prevent our people, our young people, having their minds turned in this ugly way. But... If you're concerned, and, and whether the risk is moderate or high, depending on the country, uh, uh, people who are um, speaking against issues like this and calling for um, maybe better security or closer border um, security or so on are immediately being dismissed as racist. Surely people are absolutely entitled to question that. Yes, of course. I mean, I think there is, you know, there's, we must be careful not to make general assumptions, you know, about, um, you know, the, the, the refugees that have come to Europe um, in, in, in large fold in, in recent times. Um, you know, a very, very tiny proportion of them have any suggestion of being involved in any terrorism. So that's, that's why it's important that, that in, in the public space, you know, we have a measured response to this. But you're absolutely right. Border security and upgrading that, particularly on the external border of the European Union, is a fundamental part of what we have to do to make our citizens' lives that much safer. I agree with you. And, and the same actually goes for what we have to do on the Internet, where we're losing control of that that public space of our lives in terms of what terrorists and indeed um, serious criminals can do. Um, so there are many areas here that we have to approach at the same time, uh, and that's part of, of the job that Europol is involved in. Now, one of the points you made was the external borders of the EU, which may well dramatically change within two to three years with Brexit. Brexit isn't a good deal looking at it purely from the point of view of European security, is it? Well, I made that point in the run-up to that uh, to the referendum that, that it would complicate security matters in Europe. Now, the extent to which that that materialises, of course, depends on on how the negotiations go between the UK and the European Union. And we will, you know, I'm waiting out on that just as much as everyone else. I hope, however, and I expect somebody with the experience of Theresa May under her leadership, I, I would expect the UK to to still remain a very positive 
player, of course, in European security arrangements, the exact detail of which, of course, I can't, I can't predict at this stage. But finally, Rob Wainwright, as part of Europol, and, and I'm in awe, in fact, of the challenge that faces you and your organisation, when we look at what happened 100 miles from Nice in the Alpine region, uh, and you look there at somebody who stabs a family, and I'm not in a connection necessarily with any particular organisation, but when somebody is stabbed purely for the way they dress is part and parcel of the difficulty that we face with radicalization, direct or indirect. Yes, absolutely, George. And I think it's a key part of, of, of the threat that we face, that, that um, we have these young people who are quickly radicalized and, and can turn their hands to, to anything in, a kind of, in, in their simple brutality, you know, pick up a higher truck, or use an axe on, on, on a train. You know, it's very difficult to spot these people in advance and to stop them doing that at the time. And I have a lot of sympathy for those national police forces in the front line trying to safeguard their citizens. Uh, but it's important that other agencies like my own give them the maximum help, and, and we're committed to doing that. All right. Thank you so much. That was Rob Wainwright of Europol, the European-wide law enforcement agency trying to tackle international crime, and no doubt today in his meeting with Francis Fitzgerald, he also talked about Hutch and Kinahan. And, of course, earlier on, um, he spoke at the McGill Summer School in Glenties. 53106 is the number for your text messages. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Antishuk was in full flow in the doll today on the issue of rebuilding Ireland. That's Simon Coveney's radical housing action plan. This is what he had to say about the role of councils. It's about time now that county councils got back into the business of providing houses for their people. They've been given the money, the opportunities, the incentives to open up up sites that are currently off limits and to get on with that job. And the challenge for everybody is this is a real priority for government, the biggest investment in the history of the state in this area. And we intend to see that it will work and be seen to work. Well, joining me now is Councillor Dermot Lacey, Labour Councillor on Dublin City Council. Councillor Lacey, welcome to the programme. Thanks, George. I believe you're down in Cork and I'm up in the Highlands Hotel in Denties in Donegal, so it shows that Newstalk is uh, very much an all-island radio station today. (laughs) Yeah, um, well, you need to get on with it, on T-shirt says. You've got the money, you've got the opportunity, you've got the land, you've got the money. All you have to do now is get on with it. I think the Taoiseach's statement, quite honestly, is disgraceful. Uh, I think it shows a Taoiseach who seems to forget the legislation that he himself brought in, a Taoiseach that seems to forget that he has denuded local government of funding, a Taoiseach who seems to forget that he has denuded uh, local authorities of staff across the country. Uh, To be honest, Sean, I'm a bit shocked and annoyed at the comments, George. Uh, I welcome the uh, the plan by uh, Simon Coveney yesterday. I don't think it's a particularly radical plan, but at least it's a plan. Uh, I think housing is the most pressing uh, issue facing the country. But to suggest that councils who've been starved of funding, starved of, of resources, starved of powers, and constantly been interfered with by a bureaucratic department, to blame us for the failure in housing 
is really a little bit rich coming from the Taoiseach with this record on local government. Well, I have no defence to offer for Andy Kenny, but surely the issue for local councils was actually the Jack Lynch government that removed local rates. And from there on, councils were impoverished and denuded of any kind of power. Yeah, I think that's true, uh, George. I think since 1977, we have been denuded of funding. I worked it out that in 19, that since 1977, Dublin City Council have had about $8 billion removed from us by central government. But we shouldn't forget, and it's something the Fine Gael people seem to forget, that it was also part of the Fine Gael proposals in 1977 uh, to abolish rates, uh, simply that Fianna Fáil were the ones who actually did it. It was possibly the worst ever decision uh, in relation to local government. But that was the past. Now is now. I mean, I, I believe Dublin City Council, just the one I'm, I'm involved in, has a duty to do its very best to implement the new housing strategy. That is our job. That is our role. But we have to do that with the, within the parameters of the plan that was announced yesterday. And that plan, appallingly, makes no guarantees of funding for local government, makes, gives no targets for local government housing, gives no indication that we could have additional maintenance staff, craftspeople who would actually build it, and extraordinarily removes powers in relation to the planning process from local government in order to deliver housing and gives on board Panola a whole heap of responsibilities that, in my view, is probably going to prolong the resolution of it rather than speed us up. I genuinely, and you know, up to six weeks ago, or whatever it was, six months ago, my party was in government with Fine Gael. I, I, I'm really disappointed by the, by the plan. Uh, and I think it's a plan that was drawn up by the officials in the department who have never accepted responsibility for their own failures, who have presided over the housing collapse for the last 15 years. And the plan gives those very same officials even more power. But I mean, what to, a way to... to, to, to yeah, but Councillor... All right, just to cut across your passion, and I like it, Councillor Lacey on Dublin City Council, but um, the, the, there is more than simply incompetence at housing authorities and so on. The, for 2008, the crash of 2008 created a situation in the housing market in Ireland, which is worse than anywhere else because we had gone too far in the other direction pre-2008. So nobody was building houses. We went from building more houses than the United Kingdom under Bertie Ahern to the point of where under Andy Kennedy we were building no houses. Well, of course, we were building houses but not social and affordable housing under Bertie Ahern. Uh, the big problem in relation to housing was the fact, and it, it's a tragedy for Fianna Fáil in many respects, because Fianna Fáil have traditionally had a good record in relation to social housing, but under Bertie Ahern, Fianna Fáil simply walked away from the provision of social housing. It will always be my biggest regret that during the Celtic Tiger years, that when we could have resolved the housing crisis, uh, we didn't, and I yes, think Bertie okay. should live with that. But what matters now, George, is what we do now. And what I want Minister to do is to guarantee the local authorities the funding that he wants us to build the houses on, 
to reduce the bureaucracy of his own department, to tell his officials to get on with it and stop interfering in no, what they're sorry, doing. No, sorry, Councillor, he says process. all that. He says all that in the report. No, he doesn't, actually. He if does. you read a report, if you read actually what he is saying, he doesn't say any of those things. He's creating new bureaucracies within the department. He is transferring planning applications for above 150 homes to Ambrose Panola, which will remove the local input and the local knowledge and the local expertise, compounding Ambrose Panola's already overly difficult and heavy, heavy workload. And what happens if a planning application goes in for 149 houses, George, or 151 yeah. houses? Will the 149 houses go to the local authority and 150 yeah, houses go uh, it, it is a daft no, Councillor no Lacey, a lot of who'd give planning to count local councils after what we saw they did. Well, it's not a question of giving planning. He is removing yeah, planning exactly. responsibility. But a lot of people think and, he probably giving should. It, no, no, it's not about that because he's giving it, he's transferring from one lot of officials to another lot of officials. And there's nothing to indicate whatsoever that on board Panola is better or worse than the local authorities. And I'm making no judgment on that. But the present procedure. Most planning applications go to the local authorities, the local officials, with their knowledge on all the sort of the infrastructure of the area, make decisions. Most don't go on to Umbor Panola. Now what the minister is saying, the big application should go straight to Umbor Panola without any of that local input. And I think that's a recipe for poor planning and for delayed action. And I think rather than allowing... Local councils, with their knowledge, and I'm not talking about local councillors, I'm talking about the executive, rather than allowing the officials do the job based on the local knowledge that they have, the minister is compounding the bureaucracy. And I just do not know why he's doing that, other than, like so many ministers for the environment, he is being captured by the officials in that All department. All right, OK, thank you for joining me. from the, Mc- the McGill Summer School. Glenties, Councillor Dermot Lacey, Labour Councillor on Dublin City Council.